Today on The Black Goat, we talk about that moment when you decide to speak up about bad behavior, and a letter about ways to avoid bean counting when evaluating academic performance. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Alexa Tullet and Samin Vizier. And, you know, we do this on Skype, so we get to get a little bit of a window into each other's offices or homes every time we talk. And Samin, your your background is looking especially austere today. Are you... Uh, uh, are you working on getting ready for your big move to Australia oh man, this I summer? Should, I should like put the turn the camera around so you can see. I my <laughs> so my plan was to fill. I have one of those way too gigantic trash cans that usually takes me like six or eight weeks to fill, and so I thought, okay, well I can put it out every week now and just fill it each time with junk I need to get rid of, and like eighty percent of the stuff in my house I need to just throw out, and then eighteen percent I need to give away, and then two percent I'll take with me or something. Um, and it's so hard. Like the first few weeks were really easy to fill a trash can because I could put like old pillows that are like crap, you know, that fills it pretty fast. <laughs> but now it's so hard. Like there's a lot of stuff I know I probably should get rid of, but I'm like, maybe someone would want it and I could give it away or maybe I'll still use it a few times and then it's six months or eight months I'm still here. I find, I mean, even though I'm like, if someone just came and took 80% of my stuff away, I would be like, thank God. So I don't find it hard to part with it in that sense, but like making the decision to put it in the trash can this week rather than next week or whatever, I find hard. I don't think I find those things hard at all. Like, Maybe when you come live with me, you can fill my trash can every week. Oh yeah, I'll throw all that <laughs> stuff out. Yeah. Um, yeah, when I moved from my old place to my new house, it was like I got rid of everything. Like, I threw out so much stuff. I threw out my social security card accidentally because I threw out so much stuff. Yeah. I was like, clearly I don't need paper records anymore. All of this stuff is online. Mm-hmm. So I just, like, threw out all this paper and then I had to get a new social security card. Um, but, yeah, I don't – There's there are, like, a few things that I have some sentimental attachment to. But um, I think even that is pretty rare. And I think it would take, like, a lot for me to really miss something that I threw out. So, but maybe like, I don't know, maybe I'm missing out. Like maybe I've thrown out some stuff that I would get like a lot of value out of saving. But for me, it's not the sentimental attachment. It's the like slight burden on my conscience of like some of this stuff might be recyclable. Some of this stuff someone could use. I could, should maybe give it away or like find out. Oh yeah. Well, you should give that stuff away. But that takes so much time to figure out where I'm supposed to take things and how, in what condition they need to be. I don't think it takes that much time. When it's like like, 10 different things. Like a bunch like, of stuff so in a there's box like a and place take it to Goodwill. For electronics and, uh, Goodwill doesn't take, like, f- doesn't take used clothes. Or they don't take, they have to be in pretty good condition for Goodwill. There's, I heard Salvation Army is less, has less. Are of, you sure about that? Because I, I was just thinking about this. Did you, so I got rid of a bunch of clothes. I was cleaning out my closet. And I had a an old sweater that had, that had been, like, moth-eaten. And, <laughs> but I, I... I, I should they look do. this up, but I, I'm pretty sure that I read that Goodwill also recycles clothing. Like oh, they yeah. send it to fiber recycling. And so even if it's in not great condition, I, I should double yeah, check that. I, Listeners, don't do that until you double check because right. I don't want to burden your Goodwill. But I'm pretty <laughs> sure that they do that. No, they, I mean, they yeah. So I I just heard Salvation Army has a broader range of things they accept than Goodwill. But even yeah, like, I think I've gone to Salvation Army most recently. Like all these little, for me, I mean, I know that I'm being a big baby, but like all these extra steps in the decision process 
are gonna prevent me from doing it so i should just dump it all in the trash. most of my old clothes anyway are not they're in bad enough condition that they're not worth um donating but yeah maybe i should recycle them at least i don't know anyway all the all of these things right like then you start thinking about all these things it's like trash is tomorrow morning i need to decide what to put in the trash can and you should get your property manager to do it for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do you guys true. find that your the amount of stuff you have sort of increases to fill whatever space? Like when when we moved uh, to our current house, we were in a an apartment that was like less than half the square footage. And I mean, some of that, a, a lot of that, like coincided with having a kid, um, and you know, having a kid generates a lot of stuff in our house. Um, especially when you have a kid who's obsessed with claw machines. Uh, but, you know, also just like my closet, like when I move, whenever in my life I've moved from a, to a place with a bigger closet, I just like, I fill it up and, you know, and I, I, I don't know, it just kind of like, it's hard. And I think some of it is just like, you know, as you acquire stuff, you're just not motivated to get rid of it because you're not running out of space. I mean, I, I had a hard time when I was like going through my closet the other day because I'd like pull out a shirt and I'd be like, I haven't worn this shirt in 10 years. I mm-hmm. should probably send it to Goodwill. But then I'd be like, but the last time I did wear it was at this <laughs> like party that, you know, yeah. where this fun thing happened or whatever. Or um, like admitting that you're never going to like I have a banjo. I played the banjo for like six months, but I'm never mm-hmm. going to play the banjo. again. I'm not going to throw it out. I would give it away. But like I have to admit that I've failed and given up and <laughs> this is no longer yeah. useful to me yeah and I, I have no problem admitting that but it takes like an extra couple of minutes of reflection for each item and then you know you have to get over that mental hump of like yes i should give up completely on the idea that i will ever use this again mm-hmm. in terms of like filling up space i think that um I've been pretty like slow to do that and well I don't know I haven't had my house by that long I guess but um there are still like blatant gaps where there should be things in my house and there aren't like there's like a breakfast nook that like doesn't have a table in it and like a a deck that has no furniture so it's like I basically don't use it um and I'm trying to resist a bit the urge to fill things up right away like it feels silly to um to like not have things in that in those spaces um but i'm trying to like prolong the process of getting new things um and like enjoy each new thing that i get um so i don't know or maybe i'm just lazy which is simpler and probably more accurate explanation. i have the worst of both worlds where my closets are full of stuff that i should just throw out but i also am missing really important pieces of furniture and <laughs> my walls are bare and stuff like that mm-hmm we're we're thinking of getting a new house or you know thinking of moving and um you know we in the abstract we've said like we're willing to move we want a sort of more central location in eugene kind of closer to the university and so we've in the abstract we've said like we're willing to move to a smaller place if it has like better location and and all these other things um but we looked at a place that was like way smaller than our current place and the trying to imagine how much stuff we would have to get rid of to go there was like really painful but then the other thing was also just like imagining living in this space and like Mm. yeah being on top of each other all the time and you know i was like "Uh, i don't know if we could go that small Mm. but yeah i'm thinking of getting a studio in melbourne 
just to force myself to like not bring stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always admire like when you see, you know, in magazines or like occasionally in real life, someone that has like a very spare, minimal decor where, you know, it's I mean, I always think of like a big sunny window mm-hmm. and like sort of blonde furniture or blonde flooring, like wood flooring and like just a couple of tasteful things. And I'm always like, I want to live like that someday. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, there's no way I'm going to live like mm-hmm. that someday. I just like stuff too much. I think I could. So I have Where this like put I'm... all your flashlights. Exactly. <laughs> Well, no, I, I have one. I'm very, very efficient about flashlights. <laughs> I have the one flashlight, but yeah, no, like books. I yeah. getting rid of books would be so hard. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I've I've spent I think, like, like I'm going to read that again someday, which I'm totally. Not I've doing. spent like four to six weeks living in like a studio with just a carry-on suitcase worth of stuff, and then was totally fine and happy. But obviously, you can't extrapolate from four to six weeks to years. But I feel like I could do it. Yeah, we lived, when I was on sabbatical, we lived in an apartment that was like a third the size of our house, um, and we just brought what we needed, and we were there for three months, and yeah, like you said, it, it was like, it was fine, <laughs> you know, like, it's like, why can't I live this way all the time? Yeah, but it is confounded with being in a cool place that you chose to go to. Like, in my case, I was in Paris for four weeks in a studio with just my suitcase, and it's like, yeah, if I'm in Paris, it's probably fine. But. <laughs> mm-hmm. Stuff. It's so annoying. But it is amazing how after I get rid of something, I never miss it. Yeah. 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 Well, that's that. That's the whole like Marie Kondo sparks joy right. idea, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, this is why like when I was cleaning my closet, like, you know, so I did get rid of like that shirt that I wore to a party 10 years mm-hmm. ago. But as I was going through, I pulled out the the shirt that I wore the night that I was wearing to the hospital the night my son was born Mm -hmm. and for some reason I remember which shirt that was and uh it's like I never wear it anymore because like it lost a button and (laughs) I was too lazy to sew the button back on Mm -hmm. so it's like been sitting in my closet for you know almost as long as my child has been alive but I just I could not get rid of it for some reason like because I remember that I was wearing this on that night I'm like yeah. okay I guess I'm just this this is my souvenir shirt from the night my yeah, son was born my, that's you know my plan is to allow myself one small box of clothes that I won't wear but I want to keep anyway but then once that small box is full I have yeah. to make hard decisions mm-hmm. maybe what I should do is I should frame the shirt like if I'm gonna keep <laughs> right, it right, right, right. I just should go all in mm-hmm. I should just like you know mount it on the wall be like <laughs> This is and and if I'm not willing to do that, maybe that's a sign right. that okay, I should relent and, right. and get rid of the shirt or like make it into something. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, oh, that's. But he's not idea. even willing to sew a button onto it. He's not going to make it into something. <laughs> <laughs> Pay somebody to make it into yeah. something. Maybe if yeah. he can like really like research what he can make it into. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. I will I will spend hours on the internet researching sewing machines that I will never use once they arrive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that'll be my thing. Uh, Well, okay. Should we do our letter? Yeah. Sure. All right. Dear the Black Goat, at my university, the current leaders of my department appear to be prioritizing researchers who bring in a large amount of grant money, who publish in journals with high impact factors, and who have a long list of publications each year, regardless of how many authors there are on the publications. In short, there appears to be a strong emphasis on bean counting, both for hiring and for promotion. I recognize that these can be useful metrics for evaluating faculty worth. But there has, there has got to be more, right? 
For instance, some people do not need a lot of grant money to get their work done, while others need lots. Some faculty do research that involves X number of publications a year, with only a few co-authors, while others do research that involves X plus 5, with 10 to 20 co-authors. Am I old school, believing that faculty members who are productive for their sub-area can be worthwhile colleagues, even if their record pales in comparison to the productivity rate of other colleagues in different areas? Thanks, Anonymous. Um, this is sort of, this letter was particularly interesting to me because right now um, we're hiring and we're also considering graduate student applicants. And so I've been thinking about um, ways to like ev evaluate academic performance essentially. Um, and I, my first reaction to reading this letter, of course, was like, yes, we should be trying to avoid bean counting as much as possible. Um, but in the process of doing this job search, I've realized that sometimes it can be hard, especially at the beginning when you have so much information about people um, to not rely on these like very imperfect heuristics in some ways. So um, I haven't completely avoided, you know, like, thinking about the number of publications that people have and, um, you know, you can be a little bit more nuanced than that and not just consider impact factors and not just consider a number of, number of journals and think about how many authors there are and think about the positioning of authors. Um, but all of those things, of course, are sort of like different versions of bean counting, I think. Um, one thing that one thing that I have been trying to do is um, like identifying one or a few papers. I've heard this idea before, this idea of like looking at top papers. Um, and when you identify those top papers, trying to not just think about like, you know, journal impact factor and things like that, but think about, um, you know, how how solid is the paper? And, you know, are there are there aspects of the paper that suggest really strong research methods or really like a really rigorous approach to the question or things like that um and once you i think that once you get um a list down to be a little bit shorter um it is possible to start thinking about things in that sort of more nuanced way um and i find that most people are open to doing that as well so i think i think that most of the people in my department um would try to take into account things like sub area or like the amount of time that somebody's been um, has been out of their PhD for instance so I think I think there are ways to um, yeah account for those kinds of adjustments or whatever um, but yeah it's um it is harder than I thought it was yeah I it feels like there is you know there there's a there are things that we can do when we have the, the expertise and the time to do them. Mm -hmm. And for certain decisions or parts of decision processes, we do or we could, right? So for tenure promotion decisions, we could make enough time because those, those aren't happening in such a high bulk rate, right? At least at the department level. Um, for hiring, often it's at the later stages of making cuts during a search when you have a little bit more time to spend per right. application or things like that. And yeah, this end best papers idea, which I think Mike Frank has a preprint about and the, the Computing Research Association has a position statement arguing for this as well. Um, so th this is an idea that's, that's been floating around for a while. 
Um, yeah, and so so I I guess the you know it's funny because you look at you look some you know if you look at like people who are developing new metrics like the scientometric people and whatever like they have all these hedges in their articles about how like you shouldn't just use this metric to compare people across different fields or whatever but there's total hedge drift where yeah. the people actually doing them are just like an h index is an h index and they don't you know think about what's relevant i mean that that's where like in a tenure process you know a department head letter or a committee letter can contextualize what the person does if the head or the committee has actually taken the time to do that um because the you know the metrics are so flawed, and I think this letter does a really good job of of you know addressing some of those reasons why that there are, there are differences in how much your actual contribution to each paper was, and there are differences between subfields and what's typical of how much your contribution was and what merits authorship and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, it's it's tough when it's when, you know, the letter writer d- describes it as the current leaders of their department. And so it's tough when it's just you. Right. Because, you know, if you have allies or other people and may- maybe this letter writer has colleagues who aren't the leaders of their department. But, um, you know, you can you can start to push back a little bit on this and say, hey, we you know, the, the basis for professional evaluation is supposed to be, we're a profession, we're supposed to be evaluating each other's work as peer professionals and that, that that's the core and that's what we've been doing for a long time and you know these metrics are kind of a flawed, gameable end run around that. But there's a tension, I think, between the ideal of like we should be reading each other's work and evaluating each other as peers, but also then that's intention in my mind with letting each sub discipline or community decide what's normal and expected in their field. So like if the people who study infants say, well, for our community, this is a reasonable expectation. This is what's considered productive. And then the, you know, people who study mice say, well, this is, you know, grants are really important in our community and whatever. I mean, if I'm evaluating people with using my own judgment, I might come to very different conclusions about what's acceptable or, or reasonable expectation than what are the norms in their sub community. So I think there's some tension between like actually reading the stuff and forming a judgment based on their actual work and respecting the different norms in the different communities. Um, sometimes I think there can be tension there. For example, like just to give a concrete example, I have some, there's some sub disciplines where grants matter a lot and where that it seems like in that discipline, people consider that almost okay to replace um, other kinds of, of productivity or whatever, saying, oh, well, yeah, they didn't produce much or they didn't whatever, but they got $6 million in grants. And I'm like, that doesn't seem to me to meet my definition of what I expect an a academic to be doing. Like getting grants, fine, that's all good, but I would want to see other stuff. Like that can't make up, for me, that can't make up for other stuff. But if that's the norm in their field, should I just respect that? But I think, I mean, I think that's why the, the idea of what, what is a peer and what, and the mm-hmm. idea that it has to be someone that has expertise about the work that they're doing. And it's not, that's not a binary variable. It's yeah. a continuum. But right? sometimes so, I have expertise or other people, right? like it can be like, I actually can tell that these practices are going to produce a lot of false positives or whatever, but they're the normal norm in the field. The field has not, that subfield has not like changed at all on this dimension. Like, do I hold that against the researcher or not? Mm-hmm. But but that's I mean, you can 
in part you're you're forming a judgment about the field, not the person. That's part of what's going on there. But and I the think that's okay, gonna, right? The metrics aren't going to solve that. The metrics are going to make that worse. Yeah, I'm not, it's not so much a tension between metrics and, and judgment. It's a tension between judgment and... Uh, yeah, I mean, alternative isn't necessarily to use metrics. It's just... I, I, yeah, metrics to me, I'm not sure where it fits in. But it's more about, like, should I use my judgment or should I defer to the judgments of the people who share the same incentive structure as that person, even if I'm just as qualified to evaluate. I've, I've, I've identified things that are clearly flaws or problems. Right. Well, I think like, I think a lot of search processes try to incorporate that, like that sort of maybe sort of like optimal level of outside expertise into the process. Right. I mean, so some search committees have to have like an outside member or like a more junior member or something like that. So somebody who maybe isn't, hasn't like totally embraced the same kinds of like norms or incentives as everyone else. And I think that is valuable. Like, so for instance, I think um, this is less true recently, but for a while I was reviewing like a fair number of EG papers. Um, and I think that Sometimes people would complain that I didn't acknowledge the norms, the, the the norms for ends in EEG papers, and I do think that like my evaluation of those papers was like added something to somebody who was just gonna say like, okay, yeah, it's normal for an EEG paper to have thirty people, so that's fine, because it's actually not fine, um, and I think that I'm right about that. So yeah, I think sometimes it's nice to have people who are not um, not totally subject to those norms and also i mean i think you know if you frame it as one decision done in isolation it feels like a problem but this is why we this is why we have shared governance this is why we develop criterion procedures together this is why the context of you know fields having to be answerable not just to people inside that own field but research communities have to be answerable to other research communities you know, it's and you're not going to like get everything to be perfect in every single case, but this is part of it. I mean, this is why it's important to have people, you know, outside of a field looking at its methods and critiquing it, um, and you know, like, and and to develop things to to figure out what are the cases where you do defer to the structure or incentives or norms of a field, and what what are the cases where you don't. I mean. You know, we're so so like to give a really specific example, like where, you know, in my department, I was asked to um, along with Sarah Weston, the two of us were asked to to rewrite our tenure and promotion and review criteria to address open science practices. And, and, you know, we've been starting to do this and, you know, and it's like we're not going to right into the thing like the more papers you have with open data the better which would be dumb because some people can make their data open more easily than others and and some people can pre-register more easily than others um and the way you know i i really like the way our current guidelines talk about grant funding where they you know they say the the thing that matters as far as accomplishments go is what you've actually produced um, but part of the evaluation is also looking at this is for like tenure, like, you know, where are you going in the future and that, you know, an ability to get the grant funding it needs, it, it takes to do what you do. The more important that is, then then that should be factored into the evaluation, et cetera. So it gives a sort of principled basis for saying, like, why does grant funding matter? Well, in our case, 
you know, we're saying it matters because, you know, to the extent that you need money to do the research that you say you're doing. Um, and rather than, so it's not an end, it's a means to an end. And it's evaluated in that context. And then you look at what somebody's doing and how expensive is it and, and how much funding is available. And you, you make that contextual judgment. But that and so that's like a principled way of approaching it. You have a it's not a like hard decision rule, like more dollar, more grant dollars is better. It's a, but it's 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 a an approach with a value system and a philosophy behind it that you know, guides people and how do you read a file so it's not just like willy-nilly, like whatever my priors are on, I, I think grant funding is important and you don't, we're going to disagree or whatever. It's telling us how we have to justify that decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think those are great ideals and goals. And I hope many departments function that way, but I think many <laughs> don't. And I think even when you have those principles, what actually happens in the faculty meeting can look very different. But. Yeah, but it's also right. It, so look, if if nobody's on board with what you want to do, then it's not going to work, mm -hmm. right? But but this is also why there's answerability and accountability within these processes. So like if if you know if you sit down to write a report and you say you know this this person is great because they've got six million dollars in grant funding, but they've never published anything, and if that's not what your policies and procedures say well you're answerable to your department or to your dean or whatever for having said it that way um and so yeah if nobody in the system cares then of course nobody's going to hold them accountable for doing the right thing if no one cares about the right thing um but i don't see any other way to get there mm -hmm. i mean one of the things that you know i would say to someone in this position is that there's there are starting to be, I think there's there's starting to be more uh, ideas out there. So there's this NBEST evaluation. Um, there, there's been, I think, some principled pushback. So there's SF-DORA, the San Francisco Declaration on Research Assessment, which is has a lot of signatories saying um, that we're committing not to using journal impact factor as a, um, as a, criterion for individual faculty evaluation. There's uh, Mike Doherty from University of Maryland has a really nice paper, I think it came out in Perspectives, on how to sort of increase rigor and transparency in professional evaluation, talks about research philosophy statements and annotated CVs where you know, you would annotate it. So, so if you care about how much somebody contributed, not just the number of publications, then you annotate what did you contribute? And if you care about sample size, then you annotate what the sample size was or whatever, you know, what, whatever your department has decided. Um, so, you know, I, so I think if you're in this position, there are starting to be like papers published in august journals that the traditionalists will recognize as like, okay, this is an authority or whatever. Um, and that that's that's useful ammunition in trying to have these kinds of arguments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just think I'm not super clear on what my goal would be. Like, is my goal definitely moving away from metrics, especially bad metrics? Um, and sometimes it's just as simple as substituting them for just as easy, better metrics. Um, but like, there, I find it really hard to evaluate across areas and to deal with the like. Well, that's how it's done in my subfield argument that's I agree that that that's how one should deal with it is by having 
higher level discussions about what should be driving these decisions and how we should compare things across areas with different norms. But in the real world of my experiences where we're not having those higher level discussions, I find it hard to know what to do in, a ca in individual cases. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, this is all politics, and I don't mean that in this in a cynical way. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's small p politics. It's human beings, you know, forming coalitions with like-minded others and making stuff happen and, and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, nobody, nobody likes that, and then politics doesn't ever work out great in every instance. And it's the hardest, like it's, for me, I find it the hardest with people in your own department. Like, I can do the... Mm -hmm political stuff at this at our professional society level a little bit easier or like I don't know but then when it's the people that you're having drinks with after brown bag or whatever you know it, I find it harder I think these mm -hmm. situations to me are these situations like what the letter writer describes are the hardest because like if you ruffle feathers by saying well even though it's the norm of how you do it in your field there's really good evidence that that's not the ideal way to do it or whatever it can be awkward, but yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't think we're going to resolve this, but yeah, I think the, yeah. the like principled, you know, setting guidelines at the department level way to do it is the right way to go. I guess like, I mean, one, one challenge also that when you're already at the stage of evaluating someone, let's say for tenure, is that if you at that point say to somebody like doing the things that the way that was the norm in your field this whole time, I'm now deciding that like, I don't like that as an outsider. I do think that there's something unfair about that. Mm -hmm. um, because like, yeah, I think there are people who are going out for tenure should be able to have some expectation that like um, the department has like been communicating with them about their mm -hmm. expectations. And so if it's never been an expectation that they do something outside of the norm of their field, then yeah. um, that does yeah. seem unfair. Yeah, if you've got a problem with the norms of the field, you have to take it out on the norms, not on the the individuals, you know, yeah, following them. Yeah, I mean, but I think it's one, more complicated than Well, that. yeah, and especially, like, not not at, like, tenure decision time. I can imagine, right. but there's other you know, taking like, it out on the individual, like, early on, telling the individual that, like, the expectations are different in our department and we don't care about the norms in your field. I mean, that sounds complicated, too, but better than bringing it up at tenure yeah i agree for a decision that's so black and white as tenure there's not much room for that but yeah. like things like we vote on each other's raises basically um and so is it reasonable to say you're going to get the standard raise rather than the super duper raise because you're working in a field where the practices are problematic and let you drive up your h index through these you know shortcuts or whatever and i don't think you should get the super duper raise because you didn't earn those amazing looking metrics or something like that. I, I'll stop, but I just think it's, I don't, I find, I struggle with this. I don't think it's easy to figure out what to do in these situations. Mm. Well, now that we've provided a really clear answer to this question, <laughs> as usual. I mean, do, do we have, as I guess one, right. I, I think given that it is politics, like through that lens, so what advice would you give this person? I mean, I would say, doing politics yeah, so, I think so for, forming coalitions finding allies and using the resources you mentioned the like published papers and other kinds of things that mm -hmm. are out there that have been relatively well received at least in some circles i think that's yeah. good leverage 
I think if you're in a field or a research community where this is a common concern, like if, if you're in a field where the norm is to not publish as many papers as another subfield, that can also be a way to organize with people in your research community who are outside of your department or institution to say, we're going to, you know, put out a position paper, or we're going to put out recommendations for how to evaluate people that do this kind of work. Um, so that, that, you know, yeah, I guess it's, it's sort of, it's playing the politics of it yeah. in a in a principled way. And I would add that um, it depends a little bit on the details of the situation, but our the letter writer says that it's the leaders of the department appear to be prioritizing researchers who do this. Um, and I don't know what this person's position in the department is relative to the leaders of the department, um, but sometimes I think like even just sort of bringing these ideas up um, might be able to go a long way because I think there's a lot of pluralistic ignorance about um, how much people embrace the like norms for evaluating research and researchers and things like that. And so, I mean, my experience sometimes is that um, if you suggest, what if we like considered this other thing or what if we did this in a different way, um, then even people who appear to have valued the traditional system might be more open to that than you think. Yeah, cool. Well, uh, thank you, Anonymous, and, and good luck with your situation. I hope, uh, I hope it works out. Um, and uh, yes, we agree with you. <laughs> I think that's the <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Uh, um, you know, the, am I old school? Is their question? I think uh, no. I think in some ways uh, this is like this is old old school. It's like it's like you know so how, old like, school. It's new school. It's like mom jeans. Yeah, or like like how like little kids' names that become popular are always like your great grandmother's mm-hmm. generation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, it's like that. So uh, you're hip letter writer you're 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 with the cool kids all right uh, so sorry. <laughs> i have so much credibility on that. Uh, all right uh well thank you and uh if you're listening and you'd like to email us and hear what the cool hip flashlight researching sweater wearing nerds on this podcast well me plus to actual cool people uh want to say you can reach us letters at the blackcoatpodcast.com we're on Twitter at BlackGoatPod. We're on Facebook, Facebook.com slash BlackGoatPod. We're on Instagram, Instagram.com slash BlackGoatPod. And as soon as we're done here, I'm going to log into our Instagram because uh, Alexa uh, finally posted a picture of her in her leopard print jean jacket, which I can't wait to see. Although you'll be hearing about this two weeks late, but go check it out if you haven't yet. <laughs> um, and uh, you can rate us on iTunes if, if you uh, want to rate us. That helps people find us. Um, we're on Stitcher. We're on all kinds of things. Uh, so, yeah, thank you listeners for listening. So our main topic today, we wanted to talk about, uh, what are we calling this? That moment, that moment when you finally decide to speak out the, the I'm mad point. as hell and I can't <laughs> take it anymore moment. Yeah, um, like the final straw. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And sort of the, the idea being like when you are, uh, have been, uh, when you're witnessing an injustice or when you yourself have been the victim of an injustice, um, reaching that point where you say something or do something about it. And uh, so we want to talk a little bit about times when either we've faced this ourselves or when we've seen others facing it and sort of what what does that mean in a especially in a sort of professional academic professional setting 
And I mean, maybe a good place to start is, uh, Sumin, you have, uh, I think, a pretty uh, admirable and vivid example <laughs> of a time when you had to do this. I mean, it wasn't. Yeah. OK, so the, the story is um, about me going on the record about uh, Todd Heatherton grabbing my ass at a conference. So the backstory is, I mean, for me, my backstory is like this thing happened in 2002, my first year of grad school. Um, and I didn't think much of it at the time. It definitely struck me as very odd. And I told a few people, but I didn't register it as sexual harassment. I didn't. Yeah. But then, okay. So then flash, fast forward, let's say 2016, after the election in the US, I wrote a blog post called A Little Bit Louder Now which was like my takeaway from the election from Hillary Clinton's campaign and stuff was like biting your tongue isn't necessarily going to pay off. So maybe think about not biting your tongue because it kind of sucks if like you bite your tongue, you bite your tongue, you think you're going to get like bonus points for being a good sport and not saying anything mm-hmm. and not rocking the boat. And then it still doesn't pay off. So like I, I remember vividly like this feeling after that election of like, and also I had other stuff going on in my life where I was de- deciding whether or not to speak out and things like that and thinking, you know what? I think I've been doing the calculus wrong. I think actually maybe I should speak out a little bit more than what I thought was the optimal level. So then it was about, it was middle of 2017. Uh, someone I know contacted me and said, hey, I heard that there's this investigation going on of these Dartmouth professors. One of them is Todd Heatherton. And I remember, if someone I don't know very well, and she said, I remember you telling me a story once about him grabbing your ass at a conference. Um, so, like, I don't know if you want to share that story, but that seems like it's relevant to what they're investigating. So she gave me the contact info for the investigators. So I talked to the investigators. And then um, I'm trying to remember what, what happened. Oh, yeah. So then I, I got a call from Dan Engber, who works for Slate. I remember I was traveling. I was at the airport on my way to uh, the Netherlands. And he was like, look, I know you won't know anything about this, but do you know who I could talk to who might know about this investigation to these three professors at Dartmouth? Like maybe, you know, people in social neuroscience. I know you're not in social neuroscience. And I was like, well, I don't know anything about like what triggered the investigation and all the other stuff that's happening at Dartmouth, but I do know something about Todd Heatherton and sexual harassment. And so we talked for a while and then I was like, but look, I think there's a bigger story here. I don't think they'd be doing an investigation if it was, you know, apparently there's stuff happening at Dartmouth and this was not at Dartmouth. And this was, you know, so I was like, you know, I don't think this is the story, but like go investigate whatever I suggested some people he talked to. And then a week later, so he called me and said, like, I have talked to a lot of other people. I don't know what I'm allowed to reveal here. But anyway, so it came down to like, he was like, I need somebody to go on the record. Um, It would be very helpful to write the story. And it was a bigger, he's like, you're right. It's a bigger story. It's not, you know, this isn't like the crux of the story, but like it would help a lot if you would go on the record. So like, tell me if what, how you feel about that, blah, blah. And so I thought about it for a day or two. It was weird because I was like far away from home, couldn't easily like call people and ask their advice. So I think it's like one of the few things where I barely talked to anybody to ask for advice. And I talked to somebody I had just met, Rink Hoekstra. We were on the same dissertation committee in the Netherlands. And then we were flying together from the Netherlands. We happened to be on the same flight to Psychonomics in Vancouver. So we were like at the airport for a long time. So I told him like the whole story and I was like, what would you do? And it was really interesting to be getting advice from a complete stranger. Mm-hmm. But basically I was like, yeah, I can't really think of a reason not, not to go on the record. Like I am confident in my memory. There's other people who can corroborate that I told them 
the story soon around the time it happened or and in the years after um and like all i'm doing is just saying what happened so like whatever the reporter thinks the the implications of that those facts are that's not a that's not my job i don't have to decide like whether there's a bigger story here he knows better than me he's done the investigate he's done some investigation and stuff like that so I agreed to go on the record. It ended up being in the sub-headline. Like, Samin Vizier says that Todd Heatherton grabbed her ass mm-hmm. or something. I don't know. He didn't say ass, but... Um, which I was... I didn't realize that it would be such a prominent part of the story. And the story really wasn't mainly about that. But I think it's probably helpful to have a concrete allegation or something like that. Um, and then, you know, the rest was a much, much bigger story that they ended up finding... I don't actually, I should, I don't know exactly what happened in what order. I know Todd Heatherton resigned. I know there were other um, consequences for the other professors. Um, There's been a lawsuit since then, things like that. So there's basically a a lot of evidence that a lot of bad stuff happened, much worse than what, than Todd Heatherton grabbing my ass. Um, But it was interesting to me also, like I had people coming up to me and saying like, how, how do you know you did the right thing? Like, what if it ends up having the negative impact on his life? And what if blah, 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 what if this, what if that? And I was like, why is that my problem? Like, all I did was tell the truth about what happened. It's not my job to decide what the consequences should be, or it's not my concern whether he did a lot of other things or a few other things or what kinds of other things he did. Like, it doesn't change the fact that he did this to me. So it was interesting. Mm -hmm. Like, I got kind of wrapped up in, like, what my responsibility was as someone speaking out about it. And I had people like kind of upset with me for speaking out about it. Um, and people appealing to like my concern for Todd Heatherton personally. And I'm like, you can be concerned for him personally if you're his friend, but I'm not like, I don't see why I have a responsibility to worry about that. If all I'm doing is telling the truth. When you say like, so you mentioned um, at the beginning that like you, adjusted your feelings about like the calculus for deciding when to talk about things and when not to what did you consider before and what do you consider now I think before I really thought that there was a lot of value in like being a good team player who like doesn't rock the boat and stuff like that I still think there's some value to that I think that's a part of my like mental calculations but it I now give it less weight than I used to Mm. Um, I think I still have a medium to high bar to speak out, but right, but just less high than before. It sort of surprises me that you say like you value not rocking <laughs> the boat to some degree. Um, like for for the sake of not rocking the boat. I mean, it's not yeah. that I think you're like rocking the boat for no, no reason, but maybe it's not for the sake of not rocking the boat. I think I just I think I can let things roll off my back pretty easily. And I see that as beneficial to me and beneficial yeah, to groups right, I belong okay. to and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I see more the value and it's not like I didn't see this at all before, but I now see more the value of even if I don't feel personally like uh, worked up about it or I, it's not affecting me at my, I don't feel like I need to say something for my own well-being. Like there is also, there are also other reasons to speak out and it being just like my pride about being the kind of person who doesn't get upset easily was like too high. And I 
like took it down a few notches i think right yeah i mean it, it was an interesting case of i mean what you're just kind of alluding to where you know you were in part reporting something that had happened to you where you were groped but also part of i think part of your aim and maybe this is an artificial distinction but part of your aim was also to you know sort of provide information that was material to this case that other women were filing and reporting right mm-hmm. that so so you know yeah i don't it, it, does that make sense like yeah it was one of those sort of more predominant in your mind at the time than the other or was it kind of like they were both sort of the same thing in your mind no it was almost completely that yeah like i don't think i would have i mean a lot of it was trusting the reporter dan angber that he wouldn't bother writing the story if it was just this one incident or like a couple of incidents like this i for me i think i would judge that the story would only be worth writing if there was more than that maybe other people would make different decisions that's totally fine but i for me it was important that the reporter was someone i trusted to have well calibrated or like similar to my values about like what's a story and that it wouldn't yeah so like it wasn't about i didn't think that the world needed to know that todd heatherton grabbed my ass i thought that if there are other people saying other things and this changes the credibility of those other accounts if this is relevant for like is todd heatherton the kind of person who would do this then yeah this happened for sure and people should know that and take that into account when like if there are my guess is there were huge similarities in some aspects of what happened to me and what happened to some of the other people. Like, I mean, I heard from other people afterwards that the exact same thing happened to them. I mean, he literally, he didn't know who I was. He didn't know anything about me. I was 21 years old. It was like from his perspective, it was just like a random ass grabbing. So like I suspected if he did that once, like that wasn't the only thing he ever did and things like that. So it was, it was very much to provide a context for like, he's capable of this at least right i know at least that and that's pretty diagnostic like most people don't go around randomly grabbing 21 year old women's asses when they're he was like the he had some pretty big leadership role in spsb at the time and it happened at spsb like it's a huge status difference and yeah i think i thought it was like a weird enough thing and a diagnostic enough thing that it would provide some relevant context for interpreting other allegations Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been newsworthy, I think. So maybe mm-hmm. sadly, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that... Um, I think that probably when people decide whether or not to speak out about these kinds of things, they consider some of the things that you have mentioned, like um, what will the consequences for this person be? And how will people interpret this if it's just like, if my one... Inst- if it's presented as if I'm making a big deal out of this one instance. Um, and so, yeah, I think that it's important to be able to trust whoever you're talking to, to, um, I guess, like consider those factors and. Right. But if you make it public, you're talking to a lot of people and they're all going to have very different reactions. So there were people who saw this as like me making a big deal of this one instance and like whatever. Some people are going to choose to see it that way. But anybody who looks at the bigger picture and all the other shit that has happened with the Dartmouth case and the many, many, much more admirable actions that other women have taken and the risks they've taken and all that. Like if the, if their takeaway from my story is that I made a big deal out of Todd Heatherton grabbing my ass, then they're crazy. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Yeah, I think I think the you know that sort of reporting something or talking about something because you know for the sake of getting justice for what happened to you versus for the sort of justice or for the benefit of others is it's a really interesting kind of difference in framing because you know it it's there's almost this way in which like you know had you been doing this because you thought that what happened to you needed to be sort of addressed or whatever you know there's this way in which like there's you know people will talk about that as if it's like selfish or something which is the most absurd thing in the world mm-hmm. right but that you know she's doing it for herself or, mm-hmm. or something like that and and you know um and I, I wonder the extent to which people in these kinds of situations you know women who've been harassed and other things sort of internalize that and and it makes it harder to to say like you know you know and i'm not saying like you should have in your case should have been thinking this but but you know you you should have been thinking whatever you wanted to think but like you know the the sort of uh is it okay for me to want justice for myself mm-hmm. um i think it yeah. is very hard for a lot of people to think that that's okay and i i think it is okay and i the fact that i didn't feel that way doesn't mean i don't think other people should feel that way but yeah yeah I mean, it's it's interesting. It, it reminds me of a few. So I I I don't I'm, I don't have a moment when I broke and decided to speak out story for this episode. But I I do have a sort of you know witnessing one of those uh, moments, which is a, a colleague of mine, um, Jennifer Fried, is suing the University of Oregon for pay discrimination. And you know I've I've not been too directly involved in it. I I was acting ahead for one term while some of this was going on so I, I was like deposed in the case but I really wasn't uh, all that directly involved um, but you know in in her case like she uh, you know she spent a long time trying to go through the standard channels to get people to address a pay gap um, and not just you know for her individually but I, I think it, this is both like her because this is this is how she you know she comes at this from a very principled place but also just like the nature of of calling something gender discrimination and and of it being gender discrimination is saying you know this is affecting a whole lot of people um and you know it's been it's been a really interesting case to watch in part because this person i know is doing this incredibly courageous thing um and also because it's it's raising these enormous issues that I don't think our field has addressed. So, you know, one of the, you know, one of the major ways that gender pay gaps seem to be able to come about is that, you know, like academic pay is so much about retentions, especially when you get to more senior levels. We don't, most universities don't internally have the mechanisms to just keep people's pay at market rate through the ordinary ordinary normal processes right you have to go get an outside offer and you know to the extent that there are gender differences in who's solicited for outside offers and who's seen as like hooray this person's advocating for himself versus you know why doesn't she know her place why is she being so demanding or whatever all these forces you know, 
if if that mechanism of, of seeking retention raises differs and and I think it's it's fair to wonder not just by gender but also by race and ethnicity and and other things then it's it's a really and you know and when you think about it like what a fucked up way to you know decide who to pay is by like making them go get an offer from somewhere else um especially in an industry where there's so much friction in the job market we're not talking about some like econ 101 you know like abstract frictionless supply demand curve market we're talking about you know a real marketplace that has uh tenure and and has you know all these other things that that you know you know the fact that like the way jobs are geographically distributed in this field means that like there's almost never a competitor job in your town and so if you have a partner and a family you have to move then you know you can't just go looking for a job all these other things so it's raised these really sort of broad issues and uh um you know she's been fighting this and and the you know, is appealing it now. It's it's gone to the Ninth Circuit for an appeal because there's this absurd dismissal that that I think it's going to get overturned. Um, anyway, yeah. But it's been it's been you know just watching a colleague go through this and and you know have to fight this big machine of the university administration that can afford these super expensive lawyers and that you know can can marshal all this resources and power yeah i think the whole Mm -hmm. issue of like it's personal like there's something that happened to her or to me or whatever versus like i think so you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't like if you have something personally to get out of it people are like oh well she's just doing because she wants a raise or she's just reporting it because whatever she wants attention or whatever but if someone pursues a case of misconduct when they don't they're not implicated like let's say many cases right. of fraud right the person pushing who detected it and who's trying to get justice often doesn't have any personal stake in it they weren't necessarily personally negatively affected they just happened to be the ones who saw it saw the evidence but then people are like what's wrong with that person yeah like that why they do you care, care about this if they have nothing you? at stake it's like well you're upset if they do have something at stake and you're upset if they don't have anything so who exactly is supposed to be putting these things forward the people uh-huh. who do or don't have anything at stake Mm-hmm. Yeah, or people, right? People will just make up a motive right. that you have something at stake. So they'll say you're doing it to get famous, mm-hmm. or you're doing it to, you know, for you have a grudge against this person, or something like that, mm-hmm. you know. And so, yeah, people have. There's just this mindset, um, and people, you know, people will just fill in the blanks however they want to fill in the blanks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that people sort of when when you're reacting to somebody who's um yeah speaking up about something i think it's easy to underestimate the pressure to not rock the boat mm-hmm. um yeah i think we have all of these narratives about like people who are seeking fame and um who are like who have something like personal to gain from these processes but i think yeah, I don't know. I know this is a really sweeping generalization, but I think the pressures to be quiet in these cases usually outweigh um, the incentives to speak up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fact that people think you have to like have something wrong with you to say something if you see something wrong is it says yeah. a lot, right? But like, yeah, yeah, that message is pretty loud and clear. Like, it's yeah. I think James Heather's has a blog post about this about like that all these like weird 
hypotheses about these people's motives. Like, why can't it just be I saw something that was wrong and I felt like I had to do something about it? Like, isn't that mm-hmm. supposed to be a normal motive? That Yeah. And also, like, in some ways, you know, that, that their motive kind of shouldn't matter at all right. once you get to talking about the facts. And, and you know, Samin, you had, in the context of of your own experience, you wrote a really, I, I, you know, we'll definitely link it in the show notes, a really interesting article at Slate where you're like, you know, you're kind of like, I reported the facts of what happened, but everyone's asking me what should happen next and, and you know, how I was affected by it and whatever. And it's like, fuck you. Yeah, right. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, yeah. I'm channeling the, like the, you know, it's like, like, I, I should like w- the facts are the yeah. facts. It's kind of what you were saying earlier. And, and so, you know, you see this in a lot of other things where it's like, yeah, if somebody, you know, if somebody themselves was wronged and, and they want, you know, compensation or I mean, fuck it, even revenge right. if somebody, you know, whatever, it's like, just ignore that. So like, what are the facts right. and what, you know, what do principles of justice say we should, we should do and then let's do them. And, yeah. you know, going after their motives is kind of. Yeah, and actually, and even just asking those questions, herring. like you know, I got asked like, "Why didn't I say something sooner?" Or what about Todd Heatherton's kids or whatever? I think asking those questions really deters other people from reporting. And so, like, I'm it's fine if like my close friends want to talk through these things with me, but like, if you're a stranger and that's what you want to know about the person who reported, like you're sending a very strong message that they shouldn't report unless they have good answers to those questions. I have no idea why I didn't report it between 2002 and 2017 because no one asked me because no Mm -hmm. one suggested I should, or I don't know. Um, But I have a friend who has very, very strong evidence of scientific misconduct. And when I talked to him about like, you know, reporting it, et cetera, when he told me about it, he's like, well, it was six years ago. People are going to wonder why I didn't report it sooner. And I was like, well, fuck them. You don't need an answer to that. Like, you don't necessarily know why you didn't report it earlier. Like, you could make up a story. Like, but it's okay to say, I don't know. I just, today I decided that it should be reported. I think that's such a good Um, point. And I think probably that is often people's experience, right? That something happens and they don't decide right away that it was like something that they should or want to report. Um, I think that we all experience that in like small ways when, um, you know, like somebody like says something to you that's objectionable or does something to you that's objectionable mm-hmm. and you don't realize it in the moment. And then like a day later, you're like, wait, like <laughs> that person was being a dick or like mm-hmm. that was unfair or I should have like I should have like stood up to them or, mm-hmm. you know, told them that I disagree or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that we all experience that in a small scale, but it's easy for me um, to imagine how like time changes the way that you like evaluate something and and maybe like there is some reason to be um a little bit hesitant about that like if time has changed like your memory of what happened or something like that and you don't trust that you remember things accurately but um if you know that you remember things accurately and you now decide that it's something that's worth reporting or something that was worse than you originally thought or whatever um Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think we Or now should. you have tenure and you're like, okay, right. I'll yeah, 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 it. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or now you're no longer a grad student in that department and that person doesn't have any power over you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that there's re- this really strong um, pressure to feel like you shouldn't report something if it's been too long or. Um, and also, I think probably people's motivation to report things just declines over time. Mm hmm. 
But. Yeah, and and I think this this gets compounded by the fact that you know, especially like if you know if we're talking about like sexual harassment, sexual assault, that that predominantly happens to women. And so the you know the these kinds of questions of motivations and questions of like why didn't you do this, um, you know, are often falling disproportionately on certain groups that already tend to be undervalued or have their credibility questioned frequently. You know, it typically is it's like if you were structurally and situationally powerful, it wouldn't happen to you. And so mm-hmm. it's like that, you know, if you're, if you're in a position to like securely say something about it, it probably wouldn't happen to you in the first place mm-hmm. um, because that's not who gets targeted whether, or, or, you know, um, in the case, you know, in the case of things like misconduct, that's, you know, not the majority mm-hmm. of people in our field and, and, you know, that's not who hasn't bought into the norms of this is okay, look the other way, or I'm buddies with this person, we go to beers at conferences, so I'm not going to speak out or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just and I thought that I just had about like the difference between maybe reporting something like what you reported to me and, and then um, reporting maybe like more egregious examples of sexual harassment. Um, one, I guess one point in favor of reporting the things that like, for instance, in your case, I mean, you said that at the time you didn't think that much of it and you like, you know, it wasn't like a huge deal to you, but then later you decided to report it. Um, is that I think the the pressures to not report maybe more egregious examples of sexual harassment are sometimes stronger, right? So like, mm-hmm. I know grad students who have been um, victims of sexual harassment who um, are never gonna report it because they don't wanna be identified. And those things will just never go Mm-hmm. Like, they'll just go unheard forever, probably. Yeah, there's probably um, less stigma to saying I had my butt groped than other things that could happen to people. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, but nobody's going to say you were asking for it, or hopefully not. <laughs> oh, I'm sure some people think that. Yeah, well, yeah. Ho- yeah. Hopefully no, not. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've had many conversations, mostly about research misconduct. Well... Yeah, I've had some conversations about reporting sexual harassment, although with sexual harassment, my experience when talking to people who've experienced it is that they already feel strongly that they're not going to report it, um, mm-hmm. often for the reasons we've been talking about. The people, the conversations I have where people are really on the fence and want advice about reporting are usually, in my experience, research misconduct cases. But I, I find that my advice is often quite similar, which is like if, they're, if they want to report it, but they're like worried about all these other questions that people are going to ask them about, Mm -hmm. you know, what should happen to the person or blah, blah, blah. My advice is like, well, if you're just reporting what you saw, then you're not responsible for those other things, right? Like, especially you're not, if you're just a person who saw it, who reported the evidence and then it's in someone else's hands, then like, I just, I feel like it, I don't know. I feel like maybe it's too simplistic, but for me, it's like relatively easy to have a clear conscience. If all I'm doing is like, reporting look this paper this these things happen i actually have never reported research misconduct but like with sexual misconduct it was like these are the things that happened i don't know how how bad are they i don't know someone else can decide that what should the consequences be someone else should decide that and i think the same could apply to research misconduct when there is a body that is supposed to make those decisions and all you're doing is saying look at this and look at these other things and these things are inconsistent they shouldn't go together then let someone else decide is Mm -hmm. that fraud is that misconduct what should the consequences be especially like in the case of research misconduct and i guess this applies to sexual harassment too maybe um but especially like with research misconduct sometimes you need all of the pieces in order to make like a 
um, like a really definitive judgment. Um, and so if every person who sees one piece thinks that piece isn't enough, then you never get right. all of the pieces together. I think that's actually very, very relevant to sexual harassment. Yeah, I think so too. I think often perpetrators know exactly how much they can get away with with each person. Each individual, um, Oof, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think that if, you know, maybe, a, you know, like, because sometimes, uh, like, I think if someone who's been affected by something, if someone who's been harmed by it, often, like, if they want to speak out about how it's affected them, we should, we need to support that and we need to honor that. And I, I think, you know, maybe a, this is probably too generous, but maybe the people that are asking you you know, well, how did this affect you or whatever are sort of putting it into that framing or whatever. But it just feels like there's, you know, there's a huge difference between someone who's made the choice to share their story or share how something affected them versus the the outside world putting the demand Mm -hmm. on them. Because often it's also, yeah, it's it's implicitly or explicitly not just a like, I want to hear your story, but it's it's like a you know, um, you have to justify Mm -hmm. having spoken up. It has to have been really bad. And then I'm not going to believe you when you tell Mm -hmm. me how it affected you anyway. And so, you know, it's just awful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this idea that, like, you need to think about the consequences of just telling the truth for the person who is implicated in that. Um, I mean, that, that criticism, if if there is a criticism there, it should fall on the system and not on the person who's just telling the truth, right? Like, I I imagine that some people who are saying like, oh, what's going to happen to, you know, his kids or something like that. Um, I think in order for th- that complaint should fall on the system if you have like a problem with that, right? If what it means for you to honestly say what happens to you means that like, Todd Heatherton never gets to see his kids again or something like that, <laughs> then maybe, you know, you have an objection yeah. with the system this that shouldn't fall on the reporter's shoulders. Right. I think often when those complaints are brought up, it's like that the idea is that there should be no consequences. And and I think he I think his kids are adults, so it's not about like custody or anything like that, but just like isn't gonna be embarrassing for him that his kids are gonna find out that he grabbed your butt. And I'm like, Yeah, yeah we should have fucking thought of that before he grabbed Yeah, my before he grabbed your butt. <laughs> right. Like I have the same reaction to to um like students who come to me at the end of the semester and ask me to change their grade and they're like, you know, but I'm going to like lose my scholarship. And I'm like, well, you should have thought of that before you didn't do your assignments. Like I, mm-hmm. I'm not the one who decided for you to not do your assignments. Right. Right. Now that I've compared sexual harassment to not doing <laughs> assignments. No, but I, think, I think there is a lot of that burden on people who see things, right? Like again, with like research misconduct or whatever, of like, am I going to be the one to inflict this, reality on the person who did this but i think it's important right. to remember that they did it you yes. just saw it you no, just yeah, were there exactly. when it happened and right so if you want to report it i don't think you have an obligation to report it but if you want to report it i don't think that should weigh on your conscience because there's a big difference between doing the misconduct and being the one to report it and the yeah. guilt is on the person who did it not on the person reporting it yeah what's that feel like a good place to end yeah sure Okay, great. Well, uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to The Black Goat, and we will talk to you next time.